questions for people who are reacting to this video this body camera footage that came out of the police shooting of Thurman Belvins Blevins Blevins thank you Blevins 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 I'm interested I have a few questions for folks who have watched this and their reaction to it is to condemn the police and decry it as an as an example of hunting black people down and uh, murder in the streets and what have you. And my question is this. Is there any hypothetical set of circumstances that you can imagine whereby it would ever be okay for a cop to shoot a suspect? And I ask this sincerely because... Viewing this video, I, I've never seen in all my years of being privy to these debates that we engage in in the public discourse about police conduct and police procedure and use of force and police shootings, I have never encountered a clearer example, a more textbook, by the book, according to the law, right in tune with the continuum of force. I've never seen a better example of a clean shoot than this video. And it, it begs the question, if this if this video doesn't satisfy you in terms of demonstrating, look, not that you should be excited that this happened, not that it isn't a tragedy, not that it isn't horrible that a man's life is over. Of course it's horrible. Of course it's a tragedy. Nobody wanted this to happen. Nobody wants this to be the reality. But setting all of that aside, setting the emotional response to it aside, just looking at the facts as presented in this video, how do you come away from it with with anything other than the the clear basically what Mike Freeman said today, the uh, county attorney in Hennepin County. When he decided, when he announced his decision that he's not going to pursue charges against these officers because it's quite obvious that they acted properly. What, and here's my other question. You know, the first question is, is there ever a hypothetical circumstance whereby a police officer may shoot a suspect? Serious question. I really want to know because if this doesn't qualify, I need to know what the hypothetical situation is where it does. And, and two, what, what what did you expect to happen? Like what on what basis were we going to level? What were the charges we were going to level against these officers? And how would you have built the case that they were guilty of whatever the charges are? That's another thing I'd be particularly interested in. Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson. Twin Cities News Talk AM eleven thirty one zero three five FM. TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com. And your iHeartRadio app, two ways to stream us. We're here 9 to 11 weeknights. Appreciate you tuning in. Catch up on past shows by doing a search for Closing Argument in your iHeartRadio app, and our channel will pop right up there for you. 651-989-5855 if you want to address these questions or provide other commentary regarding the Belvin's shooting that we have now seen. From the dash cam video and i i also want to get into how this is a thing now 
that apparently we're just going to be we're going to be adjudicating police shootings in the court of public opinion before before investigations have thoroughly taken place and in an expedited manner you know rushing to get to the judgment in order to satisfy activists who by the way obviously aren't satisfied right so all this accommodation that we've made in, in order to, you know, we're going to make sure that the, the camera video is put out as soon as humanly possible. We're going to expedite the investigation. We're going to make sure that we jump through as many hoops as we reasonably can in order to placate the community. Has had the effect of precisely nothing. Precisely nothing. It's, it's satisfied no one. Nobody's, nobody today is on a different side than they were before in terms of, whether the police are ever justified to use force under any circumstances or whether or not they defend the police. Because these are entrenched political, preconceived political priorities that have nothing whatsoever to do with the facts of any given case. Well, I mean, in terms of this shooting, I think that it this is the first shooting between Jamar Clark, Philando Castile, and now Thurman Blevins. I think that this one is the most clean cut in that what you're saying, the officer had the right to use force. I think that in the Jamar Clark video, there's still, it wasn't clear enough to draw a picture of, for the public to draw a picture of what actually happened. Sure. And in the Philando Castile shooting, again, we don't know if he actually saw a gun or not. I mean, he, right. Fl- or right. Officer Yanez in trial claimed that he did and that he feared for his life. Right. Um, but I think the main point of contention in the in the Yanez case was that he was just charged with the wrong crime with how he actually acted at the sure. crime scene. My, my, I have sympathies for people who are critical of the police. I I myself have a unconventional vision for how the criminal justice system ought to be reformed, and it doesn't look anything like. The status quo, you know, I would like I would like to see something that really doesn't resemble in in very many ways at all what we currently have today. Something that followed a model more analogous to to the biblical model of justice. Something closer to what uh, we were used to prior to the establishment of modern policing agencies. Back when you know judges put out warrants for people who had been determined to be guilty of a crime or convicted of a crime. And then they were apprehended by people who were paid to do it. And that was that's all there was to it. You didn't have people patrolling. You didn't have people actively looking for violators of the law. You had people responding to due process. I think a, a reactive model like that would be much better than what we have today. But be that as it may, setting aside the debate over what the criminal justice system ought to look like in some theoretical future, right now today, looking at the facts in front of us, I don't understand, just from a strategic, from a political strategy perspective, how do you expect, and again, this is a question I address to, to you know, the, the family of uh, Blevins and the activists who shouted down Mike Freeman, the Hennepin County attorney today, when he was trying to make his announcement that he wasn't going to press any charges. To all the people who are up in arms and taking the streets and saying this is some sort of travesty against justice, how do you expect your case to ever be taken seriously 
in a situation like Jamar Clark or Philando Castile, where there is admittedly more ambiguity in those cases than there is in this one. How do you expect your concerns to ever be taken seriously if you look at video like this and say, oh, that's the cops hunting a black man down? Let me let's start. Let's start with the Star Tribune. Let's start with the last paragraph in this article. The last one buried all the way down at the bottom of the article. The last thing they say, almost as if it's irrelevant to everything that comes before. Court records show that Belvins had several criminal convictions over the past decade. He was convicted in 2010 of being a felon in possession of a firearm and of fleeing Minneapolis police in 2008 and 2012. He also pleaded guilty in 2015 to one count of fourth-degree assault for spitting at and kicking a Minneapolis Park police officer. A minor drug possession charge was dismissed on June 8th. So, you know, the premise being here, and what you'll, the, the common response to citing this that you'll hear from folks is, well, none of those are criminal offense, like none of those are capital offenses, right? We don't shoot people for minor drug possession. We don't, we don't uh, give people lethal injection because they spit at a, a park cop, right? You know, it, and, and what you, conservatives, what happened to your value of the Second Amendment, right? Like, aren't you all for people having guns? Well, <laughs> As it stands, this is a this is a decent example of a given exception that virtually everyone agrees with. If you're a felon, you probably shouldn't have a firearm. And indeed, it is against the law to be a felon in possession of a firearm. So this guy, unlike Philando Castile, who had a legal concealed carry situation going on, this guy did not have a protected right in order to be in possession of a firearm. And lest we forget... The only reason the police encounter took place in the first place was because the guy was shooting his gun off into the air and shooting it into the ground, which prompted the neighbors to call the cops. So obviously not a responsible legal gun owner, right? And so, which puts a question back to the lefties, which is, which is it? Are we, do we want to have gun control where we're actually trying to protect the public from wild gunmen who are out there trying to kill people? Do we actually want to control weapons that could be u- that are being used in such a way as to endanger other human beings? Or have we all suddenly become Second Amendment aficionados now on the left, where under certain circumstances, such as being black, drunk, and on the street in Minneapolis, you get to do whatever you want with the gun? I'm sincerely interested in the answers to these questions. Let's talk to Austin in Burnsville. Welcome to the program. Hey, Walter. How's it going? It's going. Uh, I had a couple of comments here. Uh, first, I think that um, I think one of the main times that it's okay for a police officer to get into, I guess, a firearm battle with a suspect would be when their life is directly in danger, there's no other option. And okay. I think I think that when this kind of situation happens, where uh, a white police officer shoots a suspect of color, that it kind of brings out that uh, in the left that whole. Uh, basically guilty until proven innocent and right. the other way around right. like it's supposed to be right everybody just kind of loses their mind 
Yeah. You know? Well, yeah, it's, it's the narrative is of higher priority and importance than the facts. And, you know, this, this is something that triggers the narrative and triggers the emotions that go along with the narrative. And so there's no interest in actually, you know, taking a look at, at what actually happened and questioning whether or not it's justified. I appreciate your comments, Austin. And that, that leads me to, you know, another thing that I've heard. And I'm, I'm trying to, it's difficult for me to analyze the, the arguments in defense of Blevins here and the critics critical of this shooting it's difficult for me to analyze it because the the critiques are given as though they're self-evident right that the cops were wrong and there's no real explanation offered to to justify to a detailed explanation of exactly what the cops did wrong i i haven't seen any of that presented but inferring what i can from what i'm seeing online this seems to be one of the arguments or or the basic overall argument that all this guy did was run away Right. He didn't he didn't immediately, at least, pull out his gun and start pointing at the cops. The cops showed up. They came out of their cars. They yelled at him to put his hands up. And his immediate reaction was to get up and run away. Now, he had a gun on him in his pocket visible as they pulled up. And lest we forget, they were responding to a call of a man fitting his description, shooting a gun off into the air wildly, randomly, which is a immediate mortal threat to passersby, to people around, families. This was a residential neighborhood and shooting it into the ground. So that's the context. And he runs. So, again, my question would be to the people who are upset by this, what were the cops supposed to do? What were they supposed to do? Were they supposed to let him go? Would that be good police work? You're responding to a call of, a man randomly shooting a gun in a residential neighborhood. You show up, you see a guy with booze and a gun in his pocket. You tell him to put his hands up and he bolts. And you just go, oh, I guess that one slipped away. Was that the response that we were looking for here? When when the chase began and the cops kept yelling at him to stop and to put his hands up and he refused. And they kept warning him, we will shoot you, we will shoot you. And he, he reaches in and he pulls his gun out of his pocket. At what, were they supposed to give up then? Were they supposed to, were they supposed to lie down and let themselves be shot? Like, I'm trying to understand that genuinely. I want to understand what the alternative course of action was here. 651-989-5855. Closing argument. My name's Walter Hudson. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, Twin No charges will be filed against two Minneapolis police officers who fatally shot an armed Thurman Levins during a foot chase last month. Hennepin County Attorney Mike Freeman announced Monday. Witness testimony, the officer's body camera video and forensic testing all proved that Blevins had a 9mm semi-automatic handgun in his hand and refused multiple commands to drop the gun during the foot chase that ended in his death on June 23rd, Freeman said in a statement. That from the Star Tribune. Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM. 651-989-5855 is the number to join us. Now, it is interesting. This this case and cases like it do kind of flip the script on the left, who is, you know, when it comes to anytime there's a mass shooting, a school shooting, 
and gun rights and gun laws are in the news, you hear all this, you see all this wringing of hands and hear all this gnashing of teeth and, and, and uh, rending of robes along the lines of something simply must be done to protect us from the madmen with the guns. And when the officers who are tasked with doing that, because look, I mean, let's just, let's imagine, right? Like, let's imagine the left got what they wanted on gun control. Let's just hypothetically imagine this. And we snapped our fingers, Thanos style, and the guns went away, right? And it was illegal to own them. What would happen? How would you enforce the law if, perchance, somebody somewhere magically had a gun, right? Like, what would happen? Let's say this exact same scenario happened under the left's utopia of gun control. You got a guy in the middle of a residential neighborhood with a gun firing it in the air and firing it in the ground. What's their plan for dealing with that? Like, what does gun control actually mean if not police officers responding and apprehending that guy? Right? Like, isn't that isn't that the whole point? Isn't that the vision? Or, or have they not thought it out that far as to how this actually works? What the control part of gun control actually means? And this is something that's genuinely, I mean, I know we got some lefty listeners out there. Call in and explain this to me. 651 989 Five eight five five, uh, but you know what? What it brings to the fore is the notion that, to whatever degree we decide that we are going to control people's use of firearms, ultimately that control necessitates intervention by law enforcement. When people are using the firearms in such a way as is not allowed under the law, somebody has to do something, and the doing is going to involve bringing guns as a response, right? And if there's no compliance, the situation's going to escalate pretty quickly. And it's it's probably not going to end well for somebody. So the question becomes, under what circumstances should we enable that type of intervention? There's an example here from Vice News. One day in late May, the Seattle Police Department knocked on Brian Smith's door and did exactly what many Second Amendment advocates called their worst fear. They came for his guns. They were able to do that because of a relatively new Washington State red flag law that allows the government to seize firearms from a person who has been deemed to be a danger to himself or others, even if he is otherwise legally able to own guns. It's called an extreme risk protection order, and it's one of the only types of gun control legislation to make it through state legislatures lately. Earlier this month, Illinois became the 13th state to sign one into law. In Washington, gun rights advocates have so far been relatively quiet about the law. The Seattle police have seized guns from two dozen people under the legislation so far, and advocates say they are mostly watching to see how the process actually works. Instead, the strongest notes of concern have come from two unlikely sources, the ACLU, which worries the law will disproportionately affect minorities and the poor, and mental health advocates who say they worry the law could be used to seize guns from people perceived as a danger only because of their mental conditions. In the case of Brian Smith, he's been found to exhibit signs of alcoholism and delusional disorder, but the police insist their case is based on more than just that. Smith refuses the mental health evaluation, which came in the form of a court assessment during a separate criminal case. They first came into contact with him after a neighbor reported that he was, get this, recklessly playing with a loaded handgun in his backyard while drinking. And they say they've documented other incidents of unsafe behavior. And so, you know, this idea that somebody's behavior 
linked to their ownership and use and wielding of a firearm is the determining factor in whether or not we're going to intervene, whether or not we're going to, on a case-by-case, individual basis, say, yeah, you probably shouldn't have a gun because you've demonstrated a, a, a severe degree of negligence in your handling of it. Conceptually, I'm on board with that. I am concerned about the ensuring that due process is followed and that there are uh, guarantees of that due process so that this doesn't get abused and used for arbitrary, capricious, or political effect. Let's talk to Glenn in Rosemont. Welcome to the program. I guess you could call me a lefty. I really don't, you know, I'm more liberal than conservative, but I see both sides of arguments at times. Sure. We'll we'll take you. You know, I'm on both sides of the fence. I mean, what were the cops supposed to do? Of course, I have been to the police academy. I've been through police training. My my only question is what I couldn't see is he pulled the gun out, yes, but did he motion towards the police? Because and you know it's a, it's a sticky wicket because he might have been so intoxicated maybe he was taking the gun out to drop it we don't know maybe he was taking it to point at the police we don't know I mean in that instance I was talking to my wife and I'm like you know what I would tell all these protesters if I was a cop I'm like hey I don't want to kill nobody but at the end of the day if it's between me and him going right. home. I'm going home. Right. Well, how how many milliseconds were they supposed to wait before they made the decision to to? I mean, how much how much are they supposed to risk their life on the off chance that he's trying to comply as he's actively running away and has not listened to all the previous commands? Million dollar question right there, because if he's intoxicated, you have the advantage. I mean, they probably they probably were already in shooting stance. So yeah, they were. It's it's you know that movement is not a quick movement so you know as soon as you see the, the arm as soon as you see the arm motioning up and yeah fire away but if it's my thing is if it was i'm not condemning the cops at all mm-hmm. if the gun was still pointed down then that's my only sticky wicket is that did he motion or did he begin to motion towards the police officers in the end i'm gonna side with the cops because you know they want to go home and they have that choice it's, mm-hmm. it's a, People don't realize that's the choice they got to go through with every day. That's right. That's right. I appreciate the call, Glenn, and uh, Thank you. quite a reasonable opinion from a, from a self-identified uh, lefty. Appreciate the call. All right, we'll take more thoughts and move on to some other news of the day when we return. Closing argument, my name is Walter Hudson. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, 651-989-5855, Twin Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson. We're taking your live and local reaction to the body cam footage that was released over the weekend of the Thurman Blevins shooting, police-involved shooting that took place that resulted in uh, his passing away. And the, the footage is pretty crystal clear in terms of a textbook use of force situation that uh, in my mind and in the mind of Hennepin County Attorney Mike Freeman, exonerates the officers involved. But nonetheless, nevertheless, there are still activists and family members who are insistent upon characterizing this as the, the hunting of black men in the streets of Minneapolis, which, you know, I, I, I don't know. I'm kind of left speechless on this. Let's talk to Pat. Maybe he'll have better insights for us from Plymouth. Welcome to the program. Hi, Walter. Love the show. Hey, um, 
my thought was that here's this gentleman running through the streets with a gun that they got a call at, um, you know, that he had been discharging this weapon. Mm-hmm. At the beginning of the video, there was a lady with a baby carriage that was there, mm-hmm. and he's running down an alley towards the end there. What if somebody went and walking out to bring out their garbage or a young kid come out yeah. with his bicycle right. and startle him, and I mean, he shoots that person. You right. know, I mean, what's the police supposed to do? I mean, he's ordering this person to stop if he were to kill somebody else. Right. I mean, then everybody would be crying on the other side saying that they didn't take him down. Right. Yeah, I mean, i got to imagine that the the very sensible expression that you just offered us is where the vast majority of everyone is at. And there's just this, this hardcore uh, center of you know police criticism, the, 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 the diehard, so to speak, who no matter what evidence they're presented with, no matter what situation presents itself, the police are just always wrong, which, you know, to, to me, I appreciate the call, Pat, which to me, again, just from like a, for if your task in engaging in the public discourse is to persuade people, to bring people over to your position, whether they be your neighbors or the broader public or elected officials, whatever the case may be, when you've demonstrated that there, there is no point at which you're going to be satisfied, that there really is no reasonable policy concession that you're actually looking for that no matter what you're going to be upset no matter what the circumstances were no matter what kind of accommodations are made in this case you know the release of the footage so early the expedited investigation the the decision of mike freeman on his own to to say i'm going to make the decision as to whether or not we pursue charges i'm not going to take it to a grand jury because that's been one of the demands of black lives matter is we don't like grand juries right well they they're accommodating like there's the the city of Minneapolis and Hennepin County and all of the authorities involved here have done everything that they've been asked to do by Black Lives Matter short of one thing, and that's abolish police. That's the only thing they haven't done. They've let them burn fires in the street. They've let them protest outside the fourth precinct. You know, they've... They've expedited investigations against best practices. They've released footage footage to the public uh, against established protocol, all in order to accommodate the demands of Black Lives Matter. And the answer is still, you guys are a bunch of murderers hunting black people. Well, maybe then at this point, maybe we've established that your opinion doesn't matter, right? That, that you don't have anything of value to offer to the conversation moving forward and that you're not actually interested in coming to some sort of policy solution and that you're just going to be you're going to be like the Hulk you're going to be like Bruce Banner you're just always angry and if you're always angry then the rest of us are just going to tune it out let's talk to Claire in Rosemont welcome to the program thank you for taking my call um i'm i'm interested so much in what you have to say and you actually the last comment that you made before um you took my call was was exactly uh, what I was going to say there, there's a no, it's a no win situation. Uh, my husband, uh, was a police officer for 30 years and, uh, his basic comments, uh, over all of the things that kind of basically happen is there's, there's absolutely no solution. And the, the time now where police officers are, are being targeted and shot, uh, none of them want to die, and I guess if someone, you tell someone repeatedly to drop the gun, drop the gun, drop the gun, we're going to shoot, 
Mm-hmm. I am so grateful. I am so grateful that there was, that they, they have cameras. When my husband was a police officer, there were no cameras. Sure. And so there was always that element of, there was always that element of doubt. Yeah. But, but you're right. There, there is no, there is no good solution and no family no. member is going to want their, no. and I understand their that. uncle, right. their father to be shot. Right. So. Yeah. It's, just, it's sad. I mean, it really is sad, and there is no answer. I appreciate your thoughts, Claire. I appreciate you calling the program. Yeah, look, I've I've got nothing but sympathy for the family. Like, the family, with the pain that they're going through, they get to say what they want. They get to have whatever opinion they want. I, I cast my criticism primarily at the activists who are using that family's grief in order to advance an absurd agenda. They're the ones who we ought to be casting some side eye at. Let's talk to Barry in St. Paul. Welcome to the program. Hey, Walter. I wonder if this whole issue isn't a symptom of uh, cops being more antagonistic and general day-to-day life than being helpful. Like like your situation, you talked a while back about them pulling you over for a seatbelt. <laughs> pulling people over for speeding right. out over the speed limit. Right, all right, that right. fun stuff, okay? Yeah. So so it's an us versus them in all aspects. So sure. no matter what they do, right, mm-hmm. they're not going to be right because it's them, not us. And so so how how do we fix that is the question. And, and the answer is we prioritize policing by like it's been said on this program before, we ver- we focus on crimes that somebody actually calls and complains about. That's Robert, correct. Rape, right. murder, all that fun stuff. And then, if we have time, we worry about other stuff. Yeah, right. <laughs> I agree with that uh, prioritization. Very much appreciate the call, Barry. Yeah, you know, we've talked about that before, whenever the topic of criminal justice and, and the relationship between police and the community comes up on the program. Like I say, I... I am not a fan of the status quo. I don't think that the way things are done today is the right way to do them. And I would like to see vast revolutionary, like truly revolutionary changes in the way, first of all, in the laws that are on the books. That's the foundation. That's where you have to start. We have to call through the library of statutes and just repeal a whole swath of it because there's so much that that the that law enforcement is called upon to do it requires them to to be invasive and to create you know through through no fault of their own they're doing their job right it's the fault of the legislature to create a that hostile us versus them relationship with the community by you know trying to catch you being out there trying to proactively catch you in something so that they can ticket you so they can raise revenue so they can get a collar so they can advance their their career or whatever the case may be and it sets up the incentives and the the interaction to where it's it's not a partnership which is really what it ought to be right when i talk about going back to kind of like a pre-police style of law enforcement you know where instead of having this this uh, empowered executive constabulary that's 24-7 patrolling the streets looking for things to do, you you had a more reactionary law enforcement process whereby when it was determined, when, when a warrant was issued for somebody's arrest, you hired people who were qualified to go after that person and bring them in and bring them before a judge in order to, to execute due process. The The benefit of that was, one of the benefits, 
is that when you saw that guy who was deputized, when you saw that the sheriff, when you saw the marshal or whoever it was that was engaged in that activity, they were one. They weren't. It wasn't them versus you. They were you. They were working on your behalf. They were truly there to protect and to serve. And when you saw them, you were you felt more comfortable. You felt more at ease. You felt because you know they're not after you, right? Because you haven't committed a crime, right? So you know that you're not going to find yourself on the wrong end of an interaction with them because you're above board. You're law abiding, right? Whereas the the way things are set up now, particularly. And this is where Black Lives Matter actually does have a little kernel of a point, particularly in the black community. There's there's such an incentive, a perverse incentive to try to find reasons to engage with people in an antagonistic way and to try to get them for possession of marijuana or whatever the case may be, that the it creates this sense of when you see a cop on the street. Instead of feeling protected, instead of feeling like that's that's somebody working on your behalf, you feel as though you're under attack or you're being hunted, you know, to utilize that that rhetoric, and it doesn't foster uh, a good discourse. None of which, by the way, I'm, I can concede all of that without granting the least bit of uh, con- or concession to the Black Lives Matters activists in the way that they're reacting to this Blevins situation. All right, when we return. We're going to move on to some other stuff. There's plenty of stuff to talk about today. want to get into the wonderful things that socialism is doing to Venezuela and the many concerted efforts by one half of the political establishment in this country to bring it here. Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com. Sanders Medicare for all plan which can we just pause to appreciate that this this Medicare for all moniker that has creeped into the public discourse as of late is just them rebranding the same old single payer socialist nationalized health care that they've been pitching for decades like there's nothing new here right Medicare for all focus tested focus group tested you know polls well it's the same old socialism we've been presented with in the past. His plan would boost government health spending by $32.6 trillion. And you can almost see Bernie sitting there with the Dr. Evil pinky in his mouth. $32.6 trillion over 10 years requiring historic tax hikes, according to a study released Monday by a university-based Libertarian Policy Center. And to put that to scale, the war on terror since 2001 has cost like $5.6 trillion. So five times, six times the cost of the war on terror would be Medicare for all. I mean, people can talk about, you know, how we can drop bombs and fight wars, but we can't educate our kids. Right. Like, I, I guess I can sympathize with that viewpoint. Right. But not when it's going to cost six times more. <laughs> Yeah, war. That's just outrageous. Well, it's it. You know, outrageous is one word for it. Absurd, like to the point of look. This, there is no. I I tried to come up with like an, a a hypothetical example or an analogy of what this is like in terms of if if somebody on on the right tried to come up with a policy proposal like the 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 first thing that popped in my head was let's build a Death Star like let's but but even that. 
it's too close to Trump's Space Force, right? <laughs> like, it's like, but the, let, let's build a Stargate, or let's build, here's, here's a good one, let's build a magic wand. Let's build a magic wand. Let's invest research and tax dollars into developing and discovering and harnessing the power of magic. It's that level of insane because it cannot work. And how do we know this? Because people have tried and they've been failing across the country. From Forbes, written by uh, former uh, contributor PJ Media, Paul Shea. Maryland is now the fourth U.S. state in recent years to contemplate a single-payer government health plan. The Democratic candidate for governor, Ben Jealous, has made it one of the leading planks of his campaign. However, the Baltimore Sun recently reported that Maryland would have to levy a 10% payroll tax against every business and charge a $2,800 fee for every man, woman, and child. A spokesman for the Jealous campaign stated it would be premature to say what new taxes or tax increases would be proposed. California and Vermont have also attempted to implement their own single-payer systems and have failed. In California, the cost of creating a single-payer system was an enormous political obstacle, and eventually the politically left publication Mother Jones noted in 2017 the new system would cost a lot of money, the Senate committee in charge of the bill calculated that healthy California would cost the state $400 billion per year. For context, that's more than double the state's current budget. Double. So two times the entire amount of money that the state of California spends is what would be required for this one program. That's the level of absurdity we're talking about. Continuing at Forbes. In a state where Democrats controlled the governor's mansion as well as the California Assembly, which is the state legislature, the single-payer bill was killed by Assembly Speaker Anthony Rindon, a Democrat. Rindon stated that the proposed bill was woefully incomplete and does not address many serious issues such as financing, delivery of care, and cost controls. You know, little things like that. Afterwards, he received numerous death threats from angry progressives who thought he had betrayed them. More recently, State Treasurer John Chang, another Democrat, told an audience of voters, I support single payer, but we have to be truthful here. How many of you want to pay an additional 90% in taxes? In Vermont, Democratic Governor Paul Peter Shumlin enthusiastically signed a single payer bill in 2011 with the support of the Democrat-controlled state legislature. But after years of studies and commissions, he canceled his plans. In 2015, the Boston Globe reported Governor Peter Shumlin released a financial report that showed the cost of the program would nearly double the size of the state's budget in the first year alone and require large tax increases for residents and businesses. And so, you know, scrolling down here, Paul Shea asks, why then? You know, what can we learn from these examples? You know, what what's going on here? He notes that opposition to single-payer plans has come from Democrats as well as Republicans, because that's the little thing is, you know, once you're actually, you can campaign on literally anything. This is something that that uh, I came to realize through my own experience uh, serving in local office and, and, and going through a campaign during, in the middle of my term and observing people uh, putting their hat in the ring. You can, can, you can say anything at all in terms of a campaign promise, in terms of your vision for what you're going to do once elected, and it doesn't have to pass any sort of scrutiny, any sort of merit whatsoever in order for you to cast it out there as a promise. But once you actually win 
and you're actually put in the position of being responsible for accomplishing the things that you said, reality is a harsh taskmaster. And that's what these Democrats are finding out. Most of current opposition is based on economics and not moral grounds. And Shea notes that for many on the left, the high costs are viewed as obstacles to be overcome on the way to a worthy goal rather than reasons to oppose the idea of single payer as such. As one Vermont single payer activist told the Boston Globe, it's an issue of human rights and justice. And so they honestly don't really care that this is something that doesn't work. They need to find a a way to make it work somehow, even though it's physically and economically impossible. This is the insanity that we find ourselves up against. And Paul Shea, uh, who is himself an objectivist uh, and adherent to the philosophy of Ayn Rand, makes the case correctly that the, the, the task of free market folks, people who advocate for liberty and advocate for uh, a uh, freedom-based approach to healthcare and all industry, need to start arguing on moral grounds why single-payer is morally wrong and why the free market is morally correct, which is a pretty easy case to make, as it turns out. Closing argument, my name's Walter Hudson, Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, 651-989-5855, com. President Trump taking a victory lap claims that he's already lowered the trade deficit by $50 billion. This from Hot Air. Donald Trump used his unscheduled statement from the White House to take a victory lap or two, and not just on the economy. He spoke for a little over 15 minutes, focusing mainly on the big quarter two GDP boost but also highlighting significant progress on the trade deficit, noting it's been dropped by $50 billion. Now, there's a story behind that big drop, of course, which is that the imposition of tariffs incentivize international purchases to accelerate their imports from the U.S. Now, think about that. I want you to understand what's being said there. Because of the tariffs and because of the knowledge that the tariffs were coming, international importers of U.S. goods hurried up and bought as much as they could in order to avoid the imposition of the tariffs, which created a temporary (laughs) reduction in the trade deficit that's going to go away as soon as the tariffs are implemented or has, no doubt. And they note that here that, you know, we'll see what happens snapping back in quarter three. So, you know, does Trump get credit for this? Absolutely. He is the reason it's true. He is the reason why the trade deficit has been cut, but it's not because of some sort of uh, merited and economically appropriate policy that he's engaged in. Hot air for sure. Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson, Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM. Catch us streaming at com and on your iHeartRadio app. We are here 9 to 11 weeknights. You can join the program, 651-989-5855. Brad Olin takes those calls and produces the show. So there's a piece at the Financial Post by a gentleman named Lawrence Solomon who believes that the actual objective here of of all of Trump's economic interventions and his work on tariffs is actually to bring us to a point where we ha- where we establish free markets globally. That that's the end goal. 
And this is something that increasingly I've heard people speculate callers into the program have speculated this. I've seen some scuttlebutt on social media kind of suggesting that perhaps this is the, the, the 4D chess strategic long game of Donald Trump. It's not that he actually has some sort of some sort of principal commitment to the idea of tariffs as such, but rather that he's using the threat of tariffs and all this economic intervention as leverage in order to bring countries to the table with the uh, the true objective, the real negotiated goal of getting us to something that more resembles a free market. It sounds like people after 9-11 who would say, well, we got to temporarily take away your rights right now so that we can be more free in the future. Yes, right. We gotta, we, in, in order to protect capitalism, we have to bail out the banks, that sort of thing. They, as as uh, Lawrence Solomon writes here in the Financial Post, as of this week, a commitment is in place to begin to deregulate up to half the world's trade. The $1 trillion between the U.S. and the European Union taking it out of the hands of politicians and bureaucrats and leaving it to the participants in a free market. But that's just the half of it. Out are the World Trade Organization and the world trading regime as we've known it. In is the Trump endgame of four big zeros. Zero tariffs, zero non-tariff barriers, zero subsidies, and zero barriers to market access. Now, if indeed, I'll say this, as somebody who's been highly critical of Trump's trade policies and his uh, desires for economic intervention. If indeed this is his goal, and I still don't agree with the means, I still don't think this is the way you go after it, but if indeed his goal is to get us to a place where we have zero tariffs, zero non-tariff barriers, zero subsidies, and zero barriers to market access, all right, make America great again, absolutely, let's do it. That's the way we should go. I'm not convinced that that is his goal, but I welcome the notion that it may be from the Washington post. One of the things that Lawrence Solomon notes here in the financial post is, is that Trump is threatened by or working to undermine a plan that China has that they refer to as the made in China 2025 plan. And that their goal is to control 70% of the world's basic core components and important basic materials and strategic industries. And that's all they say about That's all that uh, Solomon writes about it here in this article. And I read that and I thought to myself, well, what is this made in China 2025 plan? What's it entail? For that, we go to the Washington Post. Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin and an all-star U.S. trade delegation are in China this week to talk about the proposed $150 billion of U.S. tariffs on Chinese goods. This is for back in May. And Beijing's counter tariffs on U.S. autos, airplanes, and soybeans. The U.S.-China trade imbalance and record $375 billion U.S. deficit in goods in trade in 2017 looms large behind the threat of a trade war between the world's two largest economies. But President Trump's complaints also extend to Beijing's Made in China 2025 program, an industrial upgrading strategy that aims to shift China's economy into higher-value-added manufacturing sectors such as robotics, aerospace, and energy-saving vehicles. What is made in China 2025, and why is it getting so much attention now? Here are four things to know. One, China wants to compete in advanced manufacturing. The stated objective of this program, which was released in 2015, is for China to become a major competitor in advanced manufacturing, a sector dominated by high-income, developed countries such as the United States. 
To date, China has relied on manufacturing and exporting basic consumer goods like clothing, shoes, and consumer electronics to drive the country's growth. In these lower-value, low-wage sectors, China chiefly competes with other developing countries like Mexico, Brazil, South Africa, and Taiwan. But to escape the middle-income trap that has plagued many developing countries, China needs to move toward high-tech industries. That's where the Made in China 2025 strategy comes in. The Made in China 2025 involves government subsidies, heavy investments in research and innovation, government spending, and targets for local manufacturing content. It also builds on earlier government policies encouraging or requiring foreign companies seeking to access the Chinese market to enter into joint ventures and transfer technology to domestic firms. That's what Made in 20 or Made in China 2025 is. It's a series of government interventions, subsidies, and mandates. And that's what Donald Trump is afraid of. That's what he feels he has to respond to with these tariffs in order to fight back. Because he's under the impression, apparently, that apparently he thinks socialism works, right? Because that's what he's afraid of. He's afraid that China's socialism, that China's government intervention in the economy is actually going to make them productive is actually going to make them competitive, and that it's actually going to harm America's position in the economic world. But that's not true, right? Like, we, the, the whole point, and this, this is why the, whole, the notion of his goal being to get us to a free market in this roundabout 4D chess way is truly mind-boggling to me, because if that's his goal, if he sees the value in a free market, if he understands a free market to be uh, of the, the highest service to all those people, people who are acting in the market why would you be afraid of a competitor a adversary on the global stage going in the opposite direction like why would you look at their plan to take money out of their economy and misdirect it instead of letting it go for, for the the highest value at the lowest cost misdirect it to efforts to somehow magically boost your high-tech industry like this is we we had another another article talking about Venezuela and how it is that they are at a they're coming up on a one trillion percent inflation rate one million let's give them a little credit is it one million one million okay one million percent inflation rate you can forgive my confusion and that you know they get into describing how it is that they got here how is it they got to the point where all of a sudden you know everything is something that cost a dollar at the beginning of the year cost $10,000 at the end of the year. And the reason why is basically two things. One, they started, they spent a whole bunch of money. They spent a whole bunch of money and they got to the point where nobody was willing to loan them anymore because there was no guarantee that they were going to be able to pay it back because they were so horrible at the one thing they were doing, which is taking oil out of the ground. Right. And so that they just ended up printing the money, which causes hyperinflation. And of course, the other half of it is the politics of socialism. So to it, to a lesser extent, that is effectively China's plan to bring them into the high tech. And one of the things they note in this, the tale of Venezuela and how it all went to, to hell in a handbasket is that once Chavez nationalized oil production, what happened was the people who actually knew how to produce oil left. They left. You know why? Because they couldn't make any money anymore. Because that was the whole point. The whole point 
of taking oil out of the ground was to make money for the people who knew how to do it. And once it was nationalized and they couldn't profit from it anymore, they left and they took their knowledge with them. And they, you, what they had left over was a bunch of bureaucrats who had no idea what they were doing. But they did have a government mandate to get that oil out of the ground somehow. And strangely, for reasons that I can't possibly contemplate, that mandate wasn't enough to actually get the job done. And so China wants to follow suit. China wants to mandate that they're somehow magically through the through through an act of law going to bring themselves into the 21st century and create, you know, lower lower value or or higher value, higher wage jobs in robotics and, you know, future tech. And we're afraid of this? Where has this ever worked? Where has government saying, well, we're going to, we're, by God, we're going to mandate that industry advances. We're going to mandate innovations. We're going to mandate the next iPhone or iPad or the next manufacturing process. When has that ever worked? It hasn't. And so this is, this is not something that we need to be afraid of. This is not something that Trump needs to feel threatened by. He should, he should, you know, wish them uh, luck on their merry way and then do exactly the opposite. Exactly the opposite. You know, one of the other things they talk about in this Washington Post article about the the interplay between um, China and the United States is the notion of you know this kind of brinksmanship of dueling interventions, dueling tariffs, dueling subsidies of industry and what have you in an effort to try to control which nation has the the quote advantage unquote in different industries and all that is you know the, the notion that you're going to try to protect yourself from some other nation doing a better job at producing something what you're actually doing there is you're preventing your own consumers your own businesses your own country from benefiting from the highest value at the lowest cost who cares if china can do something better than we can that's a good thing because then we get to trade with them and enjoy that higher value at a lower cost. Then we don't have to waste our time in a less efficient process applying resources to a, to a less productive means of accomplishing something. We'll have more resources to devote to something else that we know how to do better. And then we end up with more, and China ends up with more, and everybody's better off, and everybody's happier and more productive and there's more prosperity to go around. It's a win-win. There's no problem here. What is it that we're trying to save ourselves from? 651-989-5855. Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com. It sometimes feels like I'm a voice in the wilderness shouting about free markets and uh, nobody else cares nobody else is particularly interested in the the virtues of freedom the potential prosperity of simply letting human beings seek after their own values and engage in trade at prices that they agree to which always 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 results in the highest value at the lowest cost but i am not alone in fact there are uh, others out there some, thankfully, with much more resources and larger platforms who are also interested in the virtues of liberty. Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson, Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, 651-989-5855. From USA Today, 
Charles Koch and top officials in the powerful network aligned with him warned Sunday that Republicans should no longer take their financial support for granted as Koch aligned groups work to dramatically expand their free market message to more parts of American society. Koch, the billionaire industrialist at the center of the conservative network, told reporters that he regrets his support of politicians who say they are going to be for these principles we espouse, and then they aren't. We are going to hold people accountable for their commitments, he said, during a second day of a retreat with more than 500 donors whose financial help has helped make the network one of the most powerful forces in Republican politics. Koch also criticized Trump's tariffs battles with China, Mexico, and other countries, saying the president's actions on trade could trigger a recession if it's severe enough. We should just get rid of all barriers except for things that will hurt people, he said during a rare on-the-record conversation with reporters. We should let all goods in. Koch pointedly did not support Trump in the 2016 presidential election, and although one of his top aides, Brian Hooks, said Saturday he slammed the White House's divisiveness as causing long-term damage to the country, Koch on Sunday declined to criticize Trump directly. We've had divisiveness long before Trump became president and will have it long after he's no longer president, Koch said during the roughly 10-minute conversation with journalists. I'm into hating the sin, not the sinner, he said. So... The network, launched by the Kansas billionaire 15 years ago, is poised to spend as much as $400 million on policy and politics in the current two-year election cycle. So there you go. There is a kernel of free market activism alive and well within the Republican Party, within conservative circles. And it sounds like the shot that's being uh, shot across the bow, so to speak, of Republicans from the Koch brothers is, look, we're willing to work across the aisle. We're willing to fund your opponents if they will be more in tune with free market principles than you are. And that's a pretty dramatic shift from where the Koch brothers have been at in the past. I wonder how how that's going to work in the public discourse, in the campaign rhetoric, the political rhetoric, if suddenly the Koch brothers start significantly funding certain Democrats like are the are the marching orders going to go out from on high that you have to take it easy on the Koch brothers now and they're no longer you know the corporate demons that they were when they were exclusively funding Republicans are they suddenly going to become as uh, clean as the driven snow like your Warren Buffetts and what have you like because obviously being wealthy is not the sin it's it's just like everything else right like my the virtue of my blackness or the virtue of a woman's womanhood or the virtue of uh, a gay person's gayness isn't in the gayness or the blackness or the womanhood. It's in the conformity with the leftist perspective. And in a similar sense, whether you're rich or poor doesn't really matter to the left as much as what you advocate for and how you spend your money. If you spend it on their political agenda, well, you're a saint and uh, nothing should be done to you. You you get to be uh, immune from the eating of the rich that is to come. Let's talk to Mike in Farmington. Welcome to the program. Yeah, good, good evening, Walter. A uh, couple things came to mind, but um, I, I've heard Trump reference this tax or tariff with Canada. I don't know if you've looked into it regarding milk. Something like 275%. I don't not specifically, no. Not specifically, no. Okay. Um, the other thing that I remember hearing, if, you, if we go way back, uh, do you remember Ross Perot? Yep, vaguely. 
And I think when he was running, uh, I, I think he was a pretty savvy businessman. I think yeah. he made a lot of money. Mm-hmm. He talked about the, I think at the time they were discussing or trying to implement the North American Free Trade Agreement. Mm-hmm. And at the time he was, I remember one of his lines was, there's going to be a huge sucking sound. But looking back at that and what we have now, I believe that there's a connection between the North American Free Trade Agreement mm-hmm. and the exacerbation of illegal immigration. I think some of the critics of it was that it was going to destroy what was going to happen in those countries hmm. and make people have to find work elsewhere. Have you heard anything? Or if you, you know, I, I have not looked into the particulars of NAFTA, and uh, but I'll tell you this. This is my general reaction to that. I think it's a mistake, even though the words free trade are in the North American Free Trade Agreement. I think it is, you know, like so many things that are named by government, so many bills that end up getting passed or, or brought under consideration. The name is deceptive, right? You know, the, the Affordable Care Act has nothing to do with affordability or care, right? Like, And in a similar sense, the North American Free Trade Agreement, I suspect isn't really about free trade in the sense that somebody like myself and other libertarians mean by free trade. What it is, is it's a particular pro-business or particular pro-industry agreement that helps a political constituency here in the United States. And I don't understand the particulars of who and how, but I feel safe speculating that it, to, to one degree or another, it is a political payoff to people who are uh, entrenched within the establishment. And then the other question I had is to strike a balance because, you know, what we see in Trump is kind of a uh, nationalism, protect the worker. But how does, how does an administration or a president basically make the case that, hey, you guys are going to have jobs or are, you know, I think what we've seen for the longest time is you know, capital just leaves here, either through uh, regulation, you know, high taxes, and people just take their business elsewhere. Mm-hmm. What duty does the president or the administration have to create a climate that is, has, produces positive job growth? And I guess my last comment would be, you know, importing a lot of people from the third world, I don't think helps your economic situation. Yeah, I mean, I, I appreciate the call as always, Mike. You know, I'll start on the last point. Importing people from the third world. Well, again, it, it, if the condition, if they're getting here with their own resources, like that's the thing, is how are they getting here? And where are they settling once they're here? In a hypothetical free market, they would have to have something of value to offer to someone. Otherwise, they wouldn't be anywhere here for them to go, right? Like, they, there has to be a place where they're going to hang their hat, and there has to be a some, some kind of trade that they're going to engage in with willing parties who want to pay them for a value that they're providing, that they're bringing to the table. And if that's true, then importing them, even from the third world, is not going to be a negative drain on the economy. It's going to be an addition, just like any sort of interaction uh, in the market. Now, whether or not that's actually what's taking place, there's a case to be made, and I think with a high degree of merit, 
that that balance uh, is not what we're currently seeing right now because of the welfare state and, and other interventions, other reasons and method, methods how people are coming here. And uh, the we, we can get down that rabbit hole some other time. But as far as, you know, what's a president supposed to do? What's any administration supposed to do? Forget about the president. Forget about the executive. Forget about a particular administration. What is government supposed to do? It's not a one talking point solution. Well, the 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 overarching answer is uphold individual rights. That's what he's supposed to do. The rest takes care of itself. The idea, you know, we talked about this uh, last last week. If you were to imbue someone with all of the power, a universal monarch, we were to declare somebody emperor of the universe, give them all of the political power in the world, in creation. And then we went to that person and we said, your majesty, uh, on today's agenda, item number one is, what's the price of a tomato? That guy or gal would not be able to answer that question. Doesn't matter how smart they are. Doesn't matter what kind of background they come from. They could be the most brilliant human being who's ever walked the face of the planet. They are not going to be able to answer that question because that that is not something that you can dictate from on high. The only thing that government can do is leave those kinds of questions to the only process by which we obtain answers, which is the interaction of free people engaging in the market. 651-989-5855. Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, com. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson. Catch us streaming on TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com and your iHeartRadio app. We're here 9 to 11 weeknights. Appreciate you joining us. 651-989-5855 is the number to be part of the program. Brad Olin takes those calls and produces the show. Let's talk with Barry in St. Paul. Welcome to the program. So isn't the problem with these ideas? Not that they aren't morally correct, but not that they're not the way we should be going towards as a free society, but isn't, isn't it the way the government's made up since the turn of the last century that it's been moving towards growing bigger and bigger with, you know, the income tax and all these programs? And once these, these people get in place, you can't exactly take them away because now you're taking away their power. And then on top of that, to get on committees and such now, you got to have money. And right. who's raising the money to get these conservative voices on these committees? And who would if you don't believe in taxation? You know, you're buying a political thought process, and that's not our whole idea. And how do you push those ideas without playing that game? Well, I mean, it's, it's the old problem that we talk about of having the the tangled knot of policy and institutional reality and you try to decide which thread you're going to pull on first to try to untangle it and you know if i if i had the secret sauce i'd probably be doing something more than just a a nightly radio program but you know my my the 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 one observation that i'll provide and we've talked about it before is that there's a there's an interaction what you're talking about is momentum you know institutional inertia the fact that the the there's this kind of natural downward slope of of institutional movement 
you know, kind of like a snowball rolling down a hill where it just gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And the the incentive is always, you know, anytime there's some sort of big scandal of, you know, th- this uh, program isn't working correctly or there's been some sort of scandal or whatever, what's the offered solution? More money, a bigger program, another program, supplemental program, more oversight, more government. The solution's always more government, right? You know, we, we had that with uh, recently with um, the, the Star Tribune's expose they did about uh, sexual assault investigations that haven't been properly done. One of the first go-to responses from public officials is, well, we don't have enough resources. You need to give us more money, right? And we, we keep buying into that, and it's part of our, it's part of our culture. There, there's a kind of a chicken-and-the-egg relationship here whereby we have to fight on two fronts. And it's, it's hard to fight a war on two fronts, but we have to fight on two fronts. Not only do we have to go after the the policy order of operation, but we also have to fight culturally to facilitate and promote the idea that freedom is better. And to, you know, to Paul Shea's uh, argument against single payer healthcare, Medicare for all, however you want to characterize it, he talks about the fact that the reason, even though this is, it's a horrible idea that demonstrably does not work and can't be paid for. And you've had Democrats across the country in different states who've said, we're going to do it. And then they do the math and they're like, oh, geez, I guess we can't. The reason they keep throwing it out there as a wonderful new idea is because they have they have the perceived moral high ground of healthcare as a right, right? And that's that's the sphere in which we have to argue. You consider which thread do we need to pull on first, I think it's somewhere in that moral sphere of we need to start making the moral argument, not just that freedom works, but that it's morally necessary, that there is no alternative that's acceptable. I appreciate the call as always, Barry. All right. So a couple of civil liberties stories floating out there in the ether for you. This one from the Boston Globe. Federal air marshals have begun following ordinary U.S. citizens not suspected of a crime or on any terrorist watch list and collecting extensive information about their movements and behavior under a new domestic surveillance program that is drawing criticism from within the agency. And that's the that's the silver lining of this story, is that the reason we know about this Quiet Skies program that we're about to detail here, the reason we know about it is because of agents within the TSA who are rebelling against it and who are bringing this information out to the public and saying, hey, this is going on, you don't know about it, you should know about it because it's probably a violation of your constitutional rights. Continuing at the Boston Globe, the previously undisclosed program called Quiet Skies specifically targets travelers who are not under investigation by any agency and are not in the terrorist screening database, according to a Transportation Security Administration bulletin in March. The internal bulletin describes the program's goal as thwarting threats to commercial traffic posed by unknown or partially known terrorists and gives the agency broad discretion over which air travelers to focus on and how closely they are tracked. But some air marshals in interviews and internal communications shared with the Globe say the program has them tasked with shadowing travelers who appear to pose no real threat, a businesswoman who happened to have traveled through a Middle East hotspot in one case, a Southwest Airlines flight attendant in another, a, fed, a fellow federal law enforcement officer in a third case. I mean, they're, tra- they're, they're tracking themselves. They're surveilling themselves. It's a time-consuming and costly assignment, they say, which saps their ability to do more vital law enforcement work. TSA officials in a written statement to the Globe broadly defended the agency's efforts to deter potential acts of terror 
but the agency declined to discuss whether Quiet Skies has intercepted any threats or even to confirm that the program exists. Release of such information would make passengers less safe, spokesman James Gregory said in a statement. Already under Quiet Skies, thousands of unsuspecting Americans have been subjected to targeted airport and in-flight surveillance carried out by small teams of armed, undercover air marshals, government documents show. The teams document whether passengers fidget, use a computer, have a jump in their Adam's apple, or a cold, penetrating stare, among other behaviors, according to the records. Listen, I, I can't say that I'm... For the for the smallest increment of time, at all surprised about this, I have always proceeded. You know, certainly in the past twenty years or so, fifteen twenty years, have always proceeded under the assumption that if I'm in an airport or if I'm anywhere near airport property, I am under constant active surveillance all the time. That's my assumption. If you go to an airport now, you can walk up to a front desk and say, where is this person? And they will know. Right. It's no joke. It's no joke. And, you know, I, I remember one time I was taking a trip uh, to, to Washington, D.C., and I was at the Minneapolis airport, and I was standing in line to you know take care of ticketing and to check my bag. And I was approached by a guy who, you know, obviously worked for the airport, but it wasn't clear in what capacity he had, you know, he had his, a, a badge on and a, a uniform of some sort. And he started engaging me, and it was in a very kind of social way. You know, he was like, hey, how you doing? Where, where are you going today? You know, what, what, are you, uh, what are you, where are you flying? What's your business there? And at some point, like, like it was very, it started off very innocuous. And at some point during the interaction, I realized I'm being interviewed. This guy, <laughs> this guy works for security. And he's pulling me out of the line right now and interviewing me to assess whether or not I'm a threat. Now, I have no idea. Like, I can, I can begin to imagine what sort of things factored into, let's, let's ask this guy. <laughs> I'm traveling alone. I had light baggage. I travel light. I'm going to the Capitol. I'm going to Washington, D.C. You know, whatever the, the, the combination of, circumstances were that they were like we should talk to this guy and see if he comes off as a terrorist but even so it just reinforced the notion that they are constantly constantly looking for a reason to suspect you which on the one hand i guess i appreciate but when you're getting to this point where people because the lest you not realize what this quiet skies thing is is they pick they Decide that you're going to be the target of surveillance, and then they literally have people watch you for your entire journey. Like, they track you. They have somebody, like, like out of a spy movie, somebody hanging out behind a newspaper a couple of seats back, looking over the edge, watching what you're doing, and documenting it. Just randomly. You haven't done anything. There's, there, you've provided no reason for anybody to suspect. Just randomly picked out of the crowd. And in fact... In, intentionally having no other investigation or no other reason for you to be surveilled whatsoever. I Like, who doesn't do one of those things on a plane? Right. Like, what else is there to do on a plane other than sleep or use your computer? Right. Or stare penetratingly into the cold distance? Like, yeah. <laughs> there's, those, those are the three things you can do on an airplane. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I don't know what the proper approved of behavior is 
over there at the TSA. 651-989-5855. Closing argument. My name's Walter Atson. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, com. So another interesting civil liberties piece here from CNN. Anti-Fa activists could be jailed for up to 15 years for wearing masks under a bill introduced by a U.S. congressman. If passed, Bill H.R. 6054 would punish anyone wearing a mask or disguise who injures, oppresses, threatens, or intimidates someone else exercising a right guaranteed under the Constitution. Now, look, this is, I'm of two minds of this because I'm, I'm a, not a big fan of Antifa and I'm also very frustrated by what I call the passive tyranny that seems to be more and more prevalent nowadays. Passive, you know, active tyranny, we understand, right? Active tyranny is the, the, the goose stepping stormtrooper stepping on your throat kicking in your door, taking your stuff, dragging you out by your hair. That's active tyranny. Passive tyranny is when the people who are tasked with protecting your rights, the police, the authorities, the institutional administrators, and what have you, let somebody else do that to you, a civilian thug. So when Antifa comes to your rally, and they're masked, and they bring bats, and they, they, they bring weapons, and they throw, they bring mace, and they try to chill your speech. Instead of arresting them, the cops just stand aside or stand stand down, you know. Or the if it's happening on a university campus, the university administrators say, "Well, there's nothing we can do about it." You know, they have the right to be there, just like you. Never mind that they're engaging in violence. That's a passive form of tyranny, and it's a big pet peeve of mine. Not a fan of it. I think anti-fa needs to be fought aggressively by law enforcement under the law. That said, this bill's way too broad. It's way too broad, and 15 years seems pretty harsh to me. It doesn't seem commiserate with the the particular, you know, if our goal is justice, if our goal is balancing the scales, I'm not sure, you know, wearing a mask onto itself, even coupled with other activity, warrants 15 years. Now, if if the actual assault or whatever it is that, uh, the the mass person is engaged in justifies that type of a sentence. Okay, fine. But the idea that you know something that would otherwise get you, I don't know, let's say hypothetically five years, now it's suddenly going to be fifteen because you were wearing a mask. That strikes me as uh, not particularly balanced in terms of its approach. And you know the other problem here is it's one thing to say people, somebody who's wearing a mask or a disguise who injures somebody. Uh, could potentially face an added penalty. But the other words that are thrown in here, oppresses, threatens, or intimidates, that could be literally anything. That's that's putting it back to, you know, how do you feel? There's, it's very subjective. It's not an objective standard there. Let's hope Joe Maurer never gets in a fight on a baseball field. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> All right. So uh, Jeff Sessions who is somebody who, you know, it's it's kind of 50-50 with him. Sometimes I find myself very much in 100% agreement with him, and other times I find myself uh, deeply opposed to whatever's at the top of Jeff Sessions' mind. 
This particular entry here is more in the the former category. I, I find myself liking this. From the Hill, Attorney General Jeff Sessions announced Monday that the Department of Justice is creating a Religious Liberty Task Force. Sessions said the task force, co-chaired by Associate Attorney General Jesse Panaccio and the Assistant Attorney General for the Justice Department's Office of Legal Policy, Beth Williams, will help the department fully implement the religious liberty guidance it issued last year. The guidance was a byproduct of President Trump's executive order directing agencies to respect and protect religious liberty and political speech. Sessions said on Monday that the task will force or the task force will ensure all Justice Department components are upholding that guidance in the cases they bring and defend the arguments they make in court, the policies and regulations they adopt and how we conduct our operations. The announcement came during the department's religious liberty summit. Sessions said the cultural climate in this country and in the West more generally has become less hospitable to people of faith in recent years. And as a result, many Americans have felt their freedoms to practice their faith have been under attack. We've seen nuns ordered to buy contraceptives. We've seen U.S. senators ask judicial and executive branch nominees about dogma, even though the Constitution specifically forbids a religious test for public office. We've all seen the ordeal faced so bravely by Jack Phillips, he said, referring to the Colorado baker who took his case to the Supreme Court after he was found to have violated the state's anti-discrimination laws for refusing to make a cake for a same-sex wedding. So they're, they're taking action in the Trump administration under Attorney General Jeff Sessions to try to uphold religious liberty. The one nit I will pick with this, because I'm always picking the nits, right? I'm not a big fan of putting an adjective in front of the word liberty, a descriptor. You know, we, we, we all seem to agree on the political right that social justice isn't actually justice, that you don't need to put the word social in front of justice, and that there's something that's actually, you're actually taking away something from the word justice when you put the word social in front of it. The same is true of religious liberty. We just need liberty. Like, there's nothing inherent about religion that grants it special consideration or that ought to grant it special consideration in our minds or under the law when it comes to the freedom of individuals to act upon their own conscience. There's nothing, and if anything, in, in actuality, my religion, you know, if, if, you're just, if you're going to make value judgments regarding the types of decisions that I make on my own behalf, my religion kind of carries the least amount of weight, right? I mean, inherently, what I believe about God and creation and the metaphysical mysteries of the universe really is the least heavy, you know, weighty, rational argument for whatever it is, whatever choice it is I'm trying to make. You know, and it's inherently my belief versus which you don't have to share. And so the idea that there's something special about that that deserves extra consideration under the law just seems inherently dubious to me and i've never heard it reasonably articulated as to why religion in particular deserves this type of attention and by by having this distinction between religious liberty and every other sort it enables the other forms of liberty to be tread upon because they're outside the scope of religion you know whatever your reason for for making a particular choice or pursuing a particular value you ought to be able to do so regardless it's one city's news talk.com